The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. They need to burn that bitch to the ground and condemn the property. That was from a former long-term tenant of the CISA Hotel, Sally, as she describes the hotel's just dessert. Welcome to Episode 20 of the Murder Shelf Book Club. Welcome back, Murder Bookies. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life true crime book club turned podcast, and we definitely encourage you to read along with us, and if not, we certainly do the heavy lifting for you. So each month, we discuss a book that we've pulled off our murder shelf, and we are on part three of our series discussing... Gone at Midnight, The Mysterious Death of Elisa Lamb by Jake Anderson. We hope you're staying safe, healthy, and thank you for tuning in. Welcome to what we call Second Cast, where we talk about some of the things that interested us from the book, and we get to elaborate on them here. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let book club begin. Woohoo! Woohoo! So first up, we have the Cecil Hotel. Now, we spoke a lot about it in the first of our episodes. However, there are a few stories that we didn't discuss. So if some of it sounds familiar, that's okay. We're going to move through these quickly. The deadly history of this place. So this hotel is no stranger to suicide and murder. And as we alluded to in part one of the series, there were two serial killers who stayed at the Cecil during their respective killing sprees. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and Jack Unterweger, the Austrian ghoul, or sometimes known as the Vienna Woods Killer. Although the hotel has a brand new name, Stay on Main, the building cannot escape its past and its location just blocks from Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. Believe it or not, the Cecil is considered one of the most haunted places on Earth. Not America, but Earth. Earth! Earth! <laughs> Earth. The hotel is a regular stop on the paranormal tourism circuit, with many drawn to its doors by its recent past. The Cecil was built in 1924 by W.B. Hanner, who built the hotel in homage to the Hotel Cecil in London, which featured 600 rooms awaiting new arrivals. Now, 1920s Los Angeles was a growing metropolis drawing people to the West Coast, and Hanner believed that these newcomers would just love the Cecil Hotel with its ornate marble lobby, stained glass skylight windows, potted palms, alabaster statuary, brass, gold tone, and marble particulate. So all these good things, all these art deco nice things. And until the renovations began in recent years, the inlaid marble mosaic floor was very well known by visitors, guests, and even ghosts alike. Oh, I really want to stay there. <laughs> well, <laughs> not because I know the rest, but from that description... It sounds like my kind of place. That would be a nice, nice place to stay. Well, I saw a lot of that terror because last night, literally last night, 
The Cecil and the Alyssa Lamb story was featured on Discovery Plus's Ghost Adventure program. I was looking for that. It's amazing. It is amazing. It was a two-hour special focusing on the haunted aspects of this super creepy hotel and many of the mysterious unsolved cases that we are going to highlight. Perfect. You know, I totally recommend screaming it. It is ghost hunting at its finest if this is one of your interests. The Cecil is just one of these macabre sites that keeps churning up the unusual, the bizarre, the unnerving. From its inception, the idea was to have a mix of vacation guests and long-term tenants residing on the upper floors of the hotel. And, you know, that idea has endured today. Hatter spared no expense on specially making everything. This hotel was going to be the jewel of Wall Street of the West. But then, in 1929, the stock market crashed and the Great Depression hit, devastating the economy. Now, the 1930s had at least, at least six reported suicides. The first took place November 19, 1931, when 46-year-old W.K. Norton arrived under an assumed name and killed himself with a heavy dose of poison. Usually a women's work. Exactly what I was thinking. Capsules were found in his vest and convinced people that he had actually succeeded in his effort to end his life. Now, in 1934, in room 640, Army Sergeant Louis D. Borden cut his own throat with a razor. Gee, it's tough. Oh, that is a determined way to go. Yeah. All right, in March 1937, Grace Magro spent the night with a sailor. They used a lot of initials back then. Yes. Yeah, M.W. Mason, who was on the USS Virginia, and she spent the night with him at the hotel. While he slept, she crawled out the window onto the ledge and jumped to her death, tearing out all the newly installed telephone lines on her way down. I know we don't touch on it too much here, but when we are speaking about the Cecil in the other episodes about those intrusive thoughts and how people were thinking, like, oh, it would be a great idea just to jump out the window right now. Even author Jake Anderson felt that. I wonder if the same thing was going on even back then in the 1930s, or if this is more of like a recent iteration of ghosts and like negative energy there. I'm just curious as to when like all that energy just started. It makes me want to go back and research what was this land used for before the Cecil. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know either. Murder bookies, if you know that answer. Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com. We want it. Share. We want the answer. Now, here this this poor woman jumps to her death. They did interrogate her sailor boyfriend, and he could not explain why she had done this. Their time together hadn't seemed to be negative. Around the same time that this was going on, a Marine Corps member, Roy Thompson, he jumped off the roof of the hotel and was found on the neighboring building. Now, that sounds like a running jump to me. I could oh, be absolutely. So, each year seemed to leave its own tragic mark on the Cecil in suicides, and these unexplained deaths are going to continue. Did you watch the most recent season of Unsolved Mysteries that they put out on Netflix? I did not. The first episode was about some guy 
that they found, if you went missing, and I forget the whole background of the story, I think it was something to do with like a business deal gone bad or key new information or something, and then he was possibly thrown off the roof of this building. But they tried to make it look like a suicide or something like that. It just reminded me of that, like how you said running jump. Well, you're dedicated at that point. Yeah, they just couldn't figure out how he ended up where he ended up, so it just reminded me of that. But if you get a chance, you should watch that. It's probably one of the most captivated. I have so many things I'm backed up to watch. I <laughs> Surprised you haven't gotten to it yet, considering all the time that. Oh, oodles. <laughs> well, well, continuing with the sort of past of the Cecil, we're up to 1944, September. Dorothy Jean Purcell, she was just... 19 years old. She's staying at the hotel with her husband, Ben Levine. And she didn't know she was pregnant when she went into labor. And worse, after she gave birth in the bathroom by herself, I can't even imagine, she thought that her baby was dead. And instead of doing anything, she just decided the best scenario would be to throw the baby from the window and didn't even wake up her husband when she did it. And when there was a resulting trial, because they did find the baby's body, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was admitted for psychiatric treatment. Yes, please. Uh, (laughs) Remember, legally, the definition of insanity is not knowing you did something wrong. Yeah, I think she qualifies. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So here's another story, literally killing two birds with one stone, basically. In 1962, George Giannini was taking a little walk by the Cecil when something really unexpected happened. A young woman, Paulina, had just jumped from her ninth floor window after having an argument with her estranged husband, Dewey, who left Dorothy alone when he went off to dinner. And unfortunately, as she fell, George Giannini didn't break her fall. She was dead on impact with poor George crushed beneath her. Tough luck. Ow. Really tough luck. Ow. And by now, just in the early 1960s, the Cecil Hotel had a nickname, The Suicide, go figure. <sighs> and literally, even though we've just had a few minutes of sharing this history, we're really, really only getting started. Hang on there, murder bookies. All right, so 1964 marked the brutal murder of Pigeon Goldie Osgood, a retired telephone operator with Ma Bell, who is now known as Verizon. So Goldie was well-known in the area for feeding the local birds. You know, you'd have that bag with you, and you'd throw out the little crumbs for the birdies. I'm just thinking home alone, too. Exactly. That's the image in my mind, right? Pigeon Goldie was stabbed, raped, and strangled to death in the room that she rented at the Cecil, and she was found lying next to her signature Dodger baseball cap that she always wore. Now, a man... Yeah... She was a Dodger fan, yeah. A man had been found walking nearby with blood on his clothes. However, he was cleared for whatever reason. And to this day, her murder remains unsolved, and it's just one of the Cecil's many cold cases. I wonder if they still have his clothing in storage. Love to do some DNA analysis there, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you may be familiar with another local legend that has its ties to the Cecil Hotel. The murder of Elizabeth Short, known as the Black Dahlia. So in 1947, it was reported that Short had stayed at the hotel just before she was murdered. Now, regardless of what her ties to the place might have been, her body was found a few streets over, 
She was cut in half, and her mouth was carved from ear to ear, left where it could be discovered immediately in the morning, displayed for shock value. This is called posing, and this is just a terrible death and a terrible case. Yeah, I knew about this case, and I didn't know its affiliation with the Cecil until I read this book, I don't think. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't realize the connection either. We do a whole podcast and read a book about this, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the last bodies to be discovered, which was another suicide, was in 2015. I'm sure it's not the end of it. At all. It's estimated that roughly 16 people have committed suicide or have been murdered at the Cecil. And there are many, many people who believe that this number is far greater than just 16. Perhaps one for each room. Mm-hmm. But 600 deaths wouldn't go unnoticed, right? At least I hope not. <laughs> no. <laughs> Seems like a lot. Now, called stay on mean, it remains close to this day. No one is allowed to go out. And that is uh, where we are today with the Cecil. So I think it's time to start talking about some of the hotel's more famous guests, right? Yes, we have a very, very famous guest who stayed there for actually quite a significant period of time, and this would be someone called the Night Stalker. Not the original Night Stalker. No, no. A little different, though. Growing up in El Paso, Texas, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was the fifth child of Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, and the environment he was subjected to likely nurtured the boy into becoming a satanic serial killer. Fun. Yeah. Richie was really spoiled by his Catholic family. He was loved by his mother and siblings, but he was severely physically abused by his stern and controlling father. You know, young Richie loved Coca-Cola, loved making people laugh. He was a very good student with perfect attendance. Gifted athlete, Richie was an amazing football player. Fast, Tara, he was so fast on the field. I mean, he was born to play football. But he had epilepsy, and this ended his participation in the sport he was really born to play. He was found to have some temporal lobe anomalies and needed medication, and this doesn't mix with football players who can't have seizures. Yeah. Uh, Did I mention that a teacher may have sexually molested him? Hmm. What a concoction of unfortunate events. You can say that again, and this is a unfair and a huge turning point for him in his young life. Another turning point happens when he is 12 years old, a very impressionable, cognitive kind of age. His uncle Miguel, who is a Vietnam vet, comes barreling in and absolutely changes his destiny. Uncle Mike, as he's called, goes on to brag about his violent combat kills with Richie, sharing these Polaroid photos of himself raping Vietnamese women. So disgusting. Oh, just horrific. And this has a psychological impact on his psychosexual development. How could it not, right? Mm-hmm. So from this point on, Richard Ramirez has these violent sexual fantasies associated with sex with rape and the domination of women. And Uncle Mike's influence on Richie is only going to get worse. So on May 4th, 1974, with Richie watching, 
a domestic argument ensues, and he is going to shoot and murder his wife, Jessie. Neither Mike or Richie is going to tell anybody that Richie was a witness to this murder. Well, that. <laughs> yeah. They, they, totally silent, right? So while Mike is tried, he's actually found to be innocent by reason of insanity and committed. Richie Ramirez just becomes introverted and withdraws from his family. Not surprisingly, he begins using drugs. He's, you know, self-medicating here. And he eventually winds up spending about $1,500 a week for cocaine. He's funded himself by burglarizing houses. He's viewing Jack the Ripper as a hero. He turns to Satanism and starts to see it as a real force ruling the world. You know, we missed the boat on doing some calculations about how much money $1,500 a week on cocaine was back in the 70s. Damn, you're right. I missed it. So his horrified mother, Mercedes, realizes that Given where her job was located while she was pregnant with him, she thinks he may have been affected by nuclear testing that was going on at the time. Poor kid didn't have a chance, apparently. And I'm not saying that that's not true, because it very well could be. But Ramirez is now fantasizing about violence, death, destruction. Little Richie is no more. And Ramirez has become the monster. You know, when he moved from El Paso, Texas, to Los Angeles, California, he became a character on season nine of American Horror Story in 1984. <laughs> totally kidding. Well, you know, if you haven't watched it or if you have mixed feelings about American Horror Story, I love it just for the entertainment factor. And his appearance on season nine just really killed it for me. Nailed you know, it. It was perfect. No, he's right. It was absolutely spot on. He's perfect as the monster Ramirez. He is. It is definitely an interesting take. So now we're in Los Angeles. He's 5'10". He's all sinew and muscle. He's scrappy. And he was a football player. Ramirez took immediately to the downtown area. The Sousa Hotel was his anchor. And his methods of killing varied. He often used a 22 to commit murder, although a sharp blade was preferred as he had more of an opportunity to connect with that life force escaping his victim's body. Nice, pleasant, I know. And when using the knife, he often slashed his victim's throat so deeply that he nearly took their freaking heads off. One victim, who was a lawyer, Maxine Zazara, felt this unbridled rage of Ramirez one night, and he tried to cut out her heart. And finding her ribcage to be too much of an obstacle, he took her eyes instead. Pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. And he kept them on the bedside table at the Cecil as a memento. He took her eyes. That reminds me of Charles Albright, The Eyeball Killer. We really need to read that book. It is an unbelievable story. So if you're going to have eyeballs in your bedside table, the Cecil is the hotel. And it is a perfect location for Ramirez. Cheap price, great location for acquiring PCP, which is the big drug at the time, Angel Dust, for stealing the occasional car, getting his fence to dump his stolen property. And, you know, no one's questioning this slight guy dressed in black with the dark eyes, the, you know, with harrowing depth to them, and the pentagram drawn on his hand. 
I wouldn't question it either. Yeah, just, sure, I'll take the stuff and fence it for you. Whatever. Here's the money. So what was disturbing is the brutality of this killer's murders, the randomness in which he selects his victims, the lack of any real criminology that could help identify those who are at risk. And this sends a tsunami of fear across L.A. and the suburbs that was just palatable. With his skills honed from burglary, Ramirez could stealthily enter her home, sneak up on a victim so quietly that they, they really didn't have a chance, and then plunge a knife or shoot them. Just like that, they were gone. The few survivors spoke of this tawny, leathery scent because hygiene was not part of the Night Stalker's daily routine. And it's going to be this single fingerprint taken from a stolen car that's going to connect all these murders and come to be his undoing. Yeah. So for 14 months, the Night Stalker is going to terrorize everybody from April 10th, 1984, fueling these fantasies of Ramirez. He finds that peeping at women through windows is no longer satisfying his dreams of sadism, so he shifts from watching to acting. He brutally raped and murdered nine-year-old Mei Lung in a hotel that he was staying at while down in San Francisco. Now, this case was not previously connected to him, but decades later, DNA did. And this becomes now his first known murder. That was his test, I would imagine, right? When you go for someone younger, weaker, you're kind of seeing how this goes, and he picks a nine-year-old child. A few months later, back in L.A., he slaughtered 79-year-old Jeannie Wincow, who had come to California from Brooklyn to be closer to her sons, Jack and Manny. Now, a frail woman who had this problem with electrolytes, because they would leave her run down all the time, and so she was kind of a really vulnerable person, he would stab her to death in her apartment. Now, Jack, her son, was a ladle pharmacist, he would come to see his mother the next day. He decides to surprise her with chicken nuggets, which was her favorite. And he notices as he's coming up to the apartment that the screen is missing, thinks this is a little odd. There's no response when he's calling for her. And he gets into the house, and he sees her in bed, and he's confused. He pulls back the blanket and witnesses the utter devastation of his mother's body because her head was nearly detached. Just ungodly horror. L.A. detectives Jesse Castillo and Mike Wynn arrive, process this scene. It's just god-awful. I can imagine. Yeah. He's really picking on the young and the old here, huh? Well, that's what his victimology, it just was the mood, the feeling that brought him to a house. There was really whoever happened to be in it, young, old, middle-aged, whatever. Didn't matter. Mm -hmm. We're going to see something a little bit different here now. In March 1975, obviously in the throes of cocaine addiction, I'm sure probably went up past 1,500 bucks a week. Mm -hmm. He bought a 22 caliber revolver. And when we talk about guns at close range, a 22 slug is fatal. You're going to die. Yeah. He stole a car from a gas station um, as the owner went to go pay the bill for the gas. 
And then when getting on the freeway with the intention of finding someone to murder, he sees Maria Hernandez, who is a brunette with glossy hair, huge round eyes, pretty, heading home in her gold Camaro from dinner with her boyfriend. And it was her misfortune as well. He followed her into our condo development, saw her pull into a garage, and going inside where she lived with her roommate, Dale. And Dale was celebrating her promotion to traffic supervisor with L.A. County, so they have a bunch to celebrate. Life is really good. You know, an avid skier, she was taking cooking classes. She's gearing up for her 35th birthday, which is less than two weeks away. She's not going to see that birthday. As Maria gets out of the car, She's taking out her keys to open the door. Ramirez walks straight up to her gun held out, aims it at her head, which impacts the gun. It's a noise that causes her to turn around, and she's looking at the barrel of the gun, and she screams, oh, God, please don't, which is normal response. The garage light turns off, everything goes dark, and the shot rings out. And then Maria drops to the ground. She's literally got shot in the face. And Ramirez, assuming that she's dead, enters the townhouse ready to rob. But he sees Dale. Dale was already alerted by the scream and the shot and was hiding behind a counter in the kitchen, praying that this dude just doesn't see her. But the monster had seen her. He knew exactly what she was going to do. She was going to peek around, so he calmed himself. He breathed. He waited. And knowing he was going to take the shot when she put her head around that counter. And fortunately, miraculously, in the garage, Maria gets up and what anyone would do, runs for her life, frightened, running every which way. Dale, terrified, does exactly what the monster knows that she's going to do. And she peers around that counter as he fires and shoots her squarely in the forehead and Boom, snuffs out her life. He turns and leaves by the front door, only to see Maria. Why didn't she run all the way away? She's in shock, right? She's begging him not to kill her. And now Ramirez just goes, he gets into his stolen car, and he flees the scene. Now, but Maria has seen him. Tall, gaunt, shaggy hair, black eyes filled with rage. She's going to have that description. Ramirez, however, is super sexually charged with the murder of Dale. So he drives up onto the freeway to get away from the location where he was. And he spots Veronica Yu, a 30-year-old law student who's tired after a long day. She's heading home. And she notices that this Toyota, you know, the car that Ramirez has stolen, is following her. And she pulls over to make him pass as she starts looking for a police car. Now, Veronica is starting to follow him. Now, unfortunately, they come to a red light where Ramirez gets out of the car and walks over to Veronica, who rolls down the window and starts demanding, why are you following me? And Ramirez says, no, no, I, uh, you know, I thought I knew you. And she's like, no, you're not. You're not. You're a liar. You're following me. And she starts taking down the license plate, threatening to call the police. Uh, in 1985, guys, there's no cell phone. Quick as a flash, he grabs Veronica and starts to try to pull her through the through the window. At a red light. Oh. Right, at a red light, right? 
because her door is locked, but he glances over and the passenger side isn't. So he ends up getting in the car with her, shooting Veronica in her side. She jumps out of the car, bleeding profusely, calling for help as Ramirez shoots her in the back, gets out, gets back into his Toyota, and drives off. He's planning to dump it and steal another car shortly, so he doesn't care. He murders Veronica. The autopsy of Veronica Yu indicates it was a twenty-two caliber slug that killed her. It most likely matches the one taken from Dale Okazaki earlier that evening. Detective Gil Carrillo had a really sinking feeling at this point. He is now seeking the advice from Sergeant Frank Salerno, who had worked the, the Hillside Strangler case. Back in 1977-1978, Angelo Bono and his cousin Kenny Bianchi, they had abducted and strangled to death 10 women, leaving their naked bodies posed in really disturbing ways in public places, usually on a hillside. And Salerno had worked a serial killer case. So Carrillo is now fearing that the LAPD has another serial killer on their hands. Oh, Yeah. And we're going to see this pattern attack immediate, followed by a second attack again and again. And this, this demon inside him is just going to be tough to quench. Eight days after the murder of Veronica Yu, a drug field Ramirez recalled a house he burgled a year ago. Come back to the scene of a crime. Yeah, well, they do supposedly do that, right? They do, yeah. Going there and literally not making a sound, he stalked around the brick ranch where Vincent and Maxine Bazaar were fast asleep. Maxine was the woman who we mentioned briefly earlier on. And removing a screen, he entered, removing his shoes so he'd be literally silent. And Ramirez found Vincent asleep on the sofa and shot him above his left ear. Jumping up in shock and pain, so not dead, but shot, Vincent had only moments left to live. And awakened at the sound, Maxine was confronted by Ramirez, racing into our room, gun poised, outstretched. He tied her up and began to ransack the room. Now, Maxine, she's a lawyer. She's a tough woman. She carried a forty-five in her purse for protection, and she worked her bindings, knowing her only hope was to get the shotgun that was under their bed. And she did. She pulled it up, she aimed it at him, he was startled, he turned around because he heard the noise as she pulled the trigger and just click. You know, Vincent had actually removed the shells from the shotgun when the grandchildren visited days ago. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Ramirez snarled, shooting Maxine three times, beating her, calling her a bitch, went and grabbed a knife from the kitchen and tried to cut her heart out. But the cartilage is too tough, remember, so... He took her eyes and said, and brought him back with him to the Cecil Hotel, where he blended in with the hotel's clientele. The next day, a neighborhood friend would find the bodies of the Zazaras and some media sneaker prints on the grounds. And while not Detective Carrillo's case, he was starting to make connections. It literally had to be the same guy, right? Had to be the same guy. Had to be. Starting to put the pieces together, right? Well, oh, guys, by May, the monster is needing more cash, and he's on the prowl again. This time, he spies the home of Bill and Lillian Doy, and he casts his eyes around the shadow. He's ensuring he's unobserved. A Nisei, 
that is, an American born of Japanese heritage, Bill Doy had been in internment camp during World War II and had served in the Army's 44th Regimental Combat Infantry fighting with distinction. Now, 56-year-old Lillian was disabled after suffering a stroke and was unable to speak clearly. Now, they planned to take their RV and go on vacation during the summer. However, this plan would soon be dashed by the chant of a figure in the shadows of the lemon tree. Quote, Satan, this is what I, your humble servant, am about to do. I do for you. End quote. Ugh, what a sicko. At the click of the monster's gun, Bill jumped, grabbing his pistol, because, again, army veteran, right? Ramirez's bullet lodged in the back of his throat, beating Bill unconscious while Lillian listened helplessly. He soon turned on her, beating and raping her. Distracted as he assaulted Lillian, Bill came to, grabbed the phone, and called emergency services, garbling a call for help. Medical services and law enforcement did arrive, acting quickly, but sadly, Bill died of his injuries. Lillian was able to give a description of her attacker, however, a tall man with a gun and bad teeth. On hearing of this attack, Carrillo arrived, wondering if it was related to the series he was investigating. The Monterey Park Police had no interest in sharing information. A continuing pet peeve of ours. I know we're shocked to find out that departments are not sharing information in the 80s. All right, it would be a while before the importance of these avian sneaker footprints would become apparent, but hey... Well, assistant things with the description. We still can't connect anything. Let's not share. Nah, nah. No, not at all. Nope. No, no. Nope. Nope. So, so now we have Mabel Bell and Florence Nettie Lane, who are sisters. They were 83 and 81 years of age, living in Monrovia. Now, Ma Bell, she was called, she was a tough cookie, and she had taken in her disabled sister two years earlier. And together, they lived in an A-frame house on an isolated street that took some luck to actually find, so they are secluded. On May 29, 1985, the monster drove down a street letting Satan guide him. He turned off the stolen car's lights, slipped into the darkness, and climbed inside. And realizing who lived there, bashed Nettie's head in with a hammer. And he then went to Mabel and struck her with it as well and screaming, he told her to shut up, finding her with duct tape. And after raping Nettie, he drew a large pentagram on the wall with lipstick. The devil's business had been done in Monrovia. Lock your doors, please. You know, we have trust your gut. I think maybe we have to add, lock your doors. Yes. Really? That may be number two. Lock your doors. Just lock your doors. Now... As we keep saying, he is super sexually charged, Jason, and all of this rape and murder and destruction that he is administering to these poor victims. And the next day, he goes on the hunt for prey in Burbank, and he notices a beige stucco house with flowers bursting, literally bursting from the front shrubbery. And intent, he gains entry through the pet door, reaching up to unlock the rear door. The pet door? The pet door, yes. The puppy door? Slip through that. Yep. Oh, jeez. Because of the puppy. 
Inside, he finds a sleeping 42-year-old Carol Kyle, who's a registered nurse, and her 11-year-old son, Marvel. Now, waking Carol, she knew immediately that their lives are going to depend on how she handled the situation. Assuring Ramirez she did not have any guns, Marvel was handcuffed and thrown into a closet. Carol promised to give the dark, smelly intruder any jewelry, everything of value. She'd cooperate. He was in charge. But still jumping from Maxine Vizarra's pulling a shotgun on him, he was cautious of Carol, screaming she should only do exactly as he commanded. He raped her in a multitude of ways, but she complied because she could see that the look in his eyes was absolutely demonic. And that was a direct quote from her. Absolutely demonic. Mm-hmm. And as the sun came up, he told her she was lucky. He was going to let her live. He let Mark out of the closet and handcuffed them both to the headboard, and he left. Mark managed to reach the phone and dial 911. You know, Karen had a lot to tell the police about her assailant. And note this, Mabel Bell and Nettie Lang, they hadn't been discovered yet. But when they were, Nettie was still alive. But Mabel would die of her injuries. Oh, God. Well, that summer, that July, was a hot one. And once again, Ramirez is out there, and he selects a ranch-style house with one car parked outside. He brazenly walks up to the front window, pops out the screen, and just like that, slips inside. Mary Lou Cannon, who is a retired bookkeeper, age 75, is sleeping peacefully. She's independent. She is a survivor of two counts of cancer, and she's no pushover. But when Ramirez spies a heavy vase and brings it down on her head, she didn't scream for long as his fists knock her unconscious. He retrieved a long, sharp knife from her kitchen and plunged it repeatedly into her throat and chest. You know, at this point, when they come to the scene, Lieutenant Carrillo and Sergeant Salerno are fully convinced that this is the same guy. Screen, entry, some kind of brutal death. And what they do is they focus a small but mighty task force to hunt the monster. And at this point, some call him the Valley Intruder. Valley Intruder just doesn't have, like, the implied ugliness of this. Yeah. Like, it makes them sound nice. It sounds tinny. Yeah. Uh, He intrudes. Eh. No, this guy is far more horrific than that. Yeah. Like the Vizalia Ransacker. Ooh, yeah. Doesn't capture the whole horror of it. Well, cruising around in Sierra Madre in yet another stolen car, Richard Ramirez is waiting for that, you know, feeling to select, you know, the home to invade, and he finds it this time on Arno Drive. Finding a door unlocked. Please lock your doors. He strolls into the home of Steve Bennett, who is an executive with Southern California Gas, his wife, a 16-year-old daughter, Whitney, and an 18-year-old son, James. Ramirez planned to beat the parents to death, to neutralize James, which probably means killing him, and then going to enjoy Whitney. Going to get a tire iron from the car, a police cruiser driving by spooked him. So instead, he enters Whitney's room, 
covered her mouth and struck her with a tired iron viciously multiple times. He decided to kill her before he raped her so she couldn't awaken and scream. And then he started looking for something to strangle her with as she laid on her stomach. He pulled the phone cord around her neck, but sparks flew up from the wire, which gave him pause. He sees this blue haze leaving her body, and Ramirez assumes this is her soul dropping the cord in shock. Now, Whitney is desperately breathing at this point. This scares Ramirez shitless. The power of Christ has interceded, and this is no place for a Satanist. He runs his ass out of the house. I don't know if it's the power of Christ, more like the power of cocaine and drugs. Whatever, but it winds up saving Whitney's life. As dawn breaks, Whitney wakes up with a horrendous headache, bloody, having absolutely no memory of what happened. She comes out, her parents look at her, rush her to the hospital, where it's discovered she's been bashed in the head at least 20 times. Okay. Can you even imagine? The girl is lucky, lucky to have survived. After looking over her room, the police find a bloody footprint of an avia sneaker on her pink comforter. Oh, my footprint. Oh, jeez. So, five days later... Ramirez saw another target, and he was back in the neighborhood where he attacked Veronica Yu. And just lurking about, lurking at the person, I think, a newspaper delivery woman, Lonnie Dempster, actually notices him in the shadows and recognizes him from the night Bill Doy was killed. Ramirez sneered at her and said, what the fuck are you looking at, bitch? Urging Dempster on her way, but... She's suspicious. She is on high alert, and she almost, almost. What did we say in our very first series about this? If you have a feeling, call the police and trust your gut. Our brains do perceive at a level below our conscious awareness, so we know things we don't know we know. So that's your gut. Alert the police. Call them. You're going to save lives. Or you might... You might look silly, but at least you did something in case of something did happen. So Ramirez came to the residence of Joyce Lucille Nelson, and she had a big, large oak tree out front of the house, and it just created just the darkest of shadows, like, can't see anything under this, and it literally swallowed him whole into where he was standing watching. Joyce planned on retiring soon from her job with Coast Envelope, and golf was her plan for the next decade or two. And she was planning on enjoying some time with her two sons and grandchildren. By now, she was aware that there was a killer out there, but projected her son's suggestion that she put bars on her windows. And so Ramirez, finding Joyce asleep on the sofa, puts a gun to her head, grabs her by the hair as she screams, and he beats her to death. And again, he leaves a bloody avia footprint on her face. And like the others, he ransacked her home, stole any valuables, and left her body behind. Oh, guys, he's not finished. Death and destruction everywhere. That level of violence is unbelievable. He is not finished. He wants more death. And he settled this time on Sophie Dickerson. Breaking in, he charged at her, clamps his hand over her mouth. She immediately knows it's the Valley Intruder. Handcuffs on her wrist. She attempts to remain calm, 
as he puts a pillowcase over her head. Ransacking her house, he demands her jewels and her valuables. But she tried to hide her rings, so he punches her in the face. This time he attempts to rape her, but he couldn't manage it. Huh. Sophie does have an advantage. She had worked with psychopaths for 38 years as a psychiatric nurse. So she knows that he needs to be the dominant one and he needs to be in charge. So she lets him. Handcuffing her to the bed, she swore on Satan just as he demanded. And she said she had nothing else on value. I swear, I swear to Satan. And later she would tell police that he was demanding, demeaning, and threatening all at once. It was her expertise that saved her life that night. He left very few witnesses. Now, by mid-July 1985, Law enforcement is making connections between these attacks, the avias sneaker evidence, and they know they have a serial killer. Finally. Finally, right? But so did Ramirez when the reports appear in the local papers about the Night Stalker. So he vows he's going to be more careful, and he's going to go down fighting for Satan if he's confronted. So he boldly walks into Ross Cutlery, and he buys... A machete, because, yeah, we need a machete. Now, in Glendale, one block from the freeway, he enters the home of Maxon and Nyla Meagling, who were childhood sweethearts married for 47 years. Shouting out of nowhere, rise and shine, motherfuckers! He swings the machete at Max and cuts deeply into his neck, failing to sever his head. Disappointed at the non-beheading, he resorts to shooting Max and Layla to death and ransacks their house. More ransacking. Something to be really disappointed at, not taking some head off. I'm sure he probably tried to return that shit. <laughs> yeah, it was just not sharp enough and, oh, shucks, gosh, it didn't work. Poor people. Since the police were on to him, the Night Stalker brought a police scanner with him, and it did alert him that the shots had been heard. Quickly, he exits into the inky black night onto the freeway because he's a block away and he vanishes. But that attack had been way too fast. It was very, very unsatisfying. And he's going to need more. Just not enough. Yeah, he didn't just take his time with that one. Nope. So he drives over to Sun Valley and he stopped at the modest home of Chanarong and some kid Kovanen and their two children, eight and two years old. Born in Thailand, they were living what we consider the American dream. They had a nice house. They were fast asleep on a king-sized bed, comfortable. And some kid awakened first to a hand over her mouth. She remained silent. She was terrified. The night stalker went over to Chinarong, put the gun next to his head, and executed him right then and there. Done with him, he turns to some kid, rapes her brutally, and ties her up with a hairdryer cord. Hit her, he raped her again, he demanded any valuable over and over and over again, and really, really terrified her. And he left her tied up with a belt at her ankles. And he left this family and returned to a deep sleep at the Cecil Hotel, confident that Satan was going to protect Now, two weeks later, we're in August, and it brings the night stalker to terrorize the Petersons, Chris and Virginia and their five-year-old daughter. And guess what? Ramirez broke in, went over to where Virginia was sleeping with their child, 
Only she bolted awake, screaming, get out, as he shot her in the face. And now Chris, her husband, a thick guy in his 20s, he's immediately alerted, having fallen asleep on the sofa. And he rushes over to Virginia and their child. And seeing this crazy, laughing man with a gun, he lunges at Ramirez, who shot off two rounds at Chris, one missing and one striking his skull. They wrestle awkwardly for a bit, and Ramirez manages to break free and run for the sliding doors, and he escapes. And Virginia manages to call 911. And seeing the night stalker flee, Chris manages to gather his family and takes them to the hospital, even though he was shot in the skull, it was a wound, it wasn't uh, super threatening, and Virginia would actually survive her injuries as well. I, I cannot fathom all of this going on. It, it, he's tackling, they're fighting, he's shooting, there's blood. I just, my God. Well, we talked earlier about how, like, a twenty two is deadly at close range, but he must have been doing something wrong. Because this is the first time he's been with a really young, fit guy. He's going to strike again that night. And this is when that pattern again is emerging. I'm going to strike someone and I'm going to strike another person. And this time, his victims are going to be two Pakistani immigrants, Sakina and Elias Abawaf, and their two children. Now, Sakina had just finished breastfeeding their two-month-old, and the rest of them were all sound asleep. This time, he has a 25 caliber gun, and the Satanist is approaching Elias, puts the gun to his temple, fires, boom, kills him instantaneously. Throttling Sakina, he rapes her repeatedly, ransacks the house, berating her to give him all her valuables. Just horrible. On leaving now, Sakina is left to urge her three-year-old son to go next door and ask the neighbors for ice cream and cookies at 334 a.m. How scared would this little kid have to be with all of this crazy going on around him? Here's his mom urging him, no, no, go next door. You know, the nice man, Bob, he'll give you cookies. And Bob Wilson hears this ringing at his door at 3.30 in the morning and opens the door and here's this little kid, do you have cookies? Daddy won't wake up. Oh my God. And Bob Wilson calls the police. Next are going to be Bill Carnes and Carol Smith, and life was looking really good for them. He's a computer programmer, they had gone to the movies that night, and on that way home, ironically, they had discussed whether or not they should get a gun or put bars on the window because this crazy killer is on the loose. Yeah, stop on the way home and pick one up, right? That night, a click in his ear makes Bill leap from the bed, only to be shot three times in the head. Horrified, Carol screaming, oh my God, no. Ramirez is saying, don't say God, say Satan. Boy, is he caught on that, right? He viciously meets Carol. She's pleading that she, you know, yeah, sure, sure, I love Satan. You know, more robbing, more ransacking. And again, after just brutalizing everybody, he gets in the car and he leaves. And as he usually does, he'd abandon the car and steal another one right away. But this time, Ramirez leaves one fingerprint behind. Now, freeing herself, Carol calls 911. 
She gets medical attention for herself and for Bill. They all survive. Now, it's going to be this one fingerprint that led the police to the identity of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, and that tough police work that was done by Detective Carrillo, Sergeant Salerno, and many of the other law enforcement people over this 17-month-long spree of these serial murders across many jurisdictions. With Richard Ramirez's photo in every newspaper, all over the television news, Ramirez is finally identified by a crowd of very, very angry people who chase him down the streets, beat on him repeatedly, and ironically, the Night Stalker is rescued from them by the police. Yeah, Satan works wonders, right? Yeah, in 1989, Richard Ramirez was convicted by a jury of his peers in Los Angeles on 13 counts of murder. He's sentenced to death, and after hearing the sentence, Ramirez would say, quote, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Yeah, he died in 2013, leaving his mark on the Cecil Hotel and a trail of death and destruction. But he's not the only serial killer associated with the Cecil Hotel. Well, he isn't, and I don't know if it came out yet or not, but there is, I think, a four-part series about Richard Ramirez coming out on Netflix this Mm -hmm. January 2021, for anyone who might be listening to this at any point in time. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely something to watch. So our second serial killer who stayed at the Cecil, his name was Jack Unterweger. He's not nearly as prolific as Ramirez, but here we are. <laughs> Known as the Austrian Ghoul or Vienna Woods Killer, Jack just added to the dark war of the hotel. He was somewhat of an international ghoulish celebrity leaving a trail of bodies across two continents. So on August 16, 1950, in Graz, Austria, Johann Unterweger was born to a prostitute who abandoned him soon after. She had spent part of her pregnancy in jail for fraud, and it was believed Johann's father was an American soldier whom he never knew. And the child who we know as Jack Unterweger lived with his abusive, alcoholic grandfather in a one-room cabin for the first few years of his life. He grew up as his grandfather's accomplice in stealing farm animals from the surrounding area. Would that be called rustlers? Rustlers? In Texas, it would be. Oh, yes. Don't mess with Texas. Texas, same thing. (laughs) Do not mess with Texas. Texas murder bookies, I expect you to back me up on that one. (laughs) Grandfather, or grandpa, grandpa (laughs) was ruthlessly abusive and given to using prostitutes in the same bed with little Jack. How pleasant. That's not okay. And his aunt, who was also a sex worker, was also not a font of stability or nurturing for him. And given the short stick in life, young Jack was headed into a life of crime. And at 16 years old, while he did briefly work as a waiter, it really didn't last. And young Unterweger was arrested for assaulting a sex worker or using the nomenclature of the day, prostitute. And while certainly not his first crime, there were roughly 16 counts of sexual assault and violence that was already on his 1966-1974 record. He was busy, he was escalating, and he was literally on the ledge to jump over like Lady Gaga in the Super Bowl halftime show and the murder. He learned from his grandfather while growing up. 
And much of this checks off the boxes when it comes to a lot of research on the backgrounds of serial killers. So we're not accusing anything. It's just an observation that we've made over the tons of things about serial killers. A lot of the stats back that up, sadly. So 18-year-old Margaret Schaefer, who was a sex worker, became Hunter Rider's first known victim. He brutally raped and murdered her, beating her repeatedly with an iron bar and then strangling her with her own bra. And whether he intended to kill her or not is a matter of debate even for himself. And Jack would actually tell the court that he saw his mother when he looked at her. He became enraged and thus killed poor Margaret. And the court declared him insane, saying he was a, quote, sexually sadistic psychopath with narcissistic and histrionic tendencies prone to fits of rage and anger. And he is an incorrigible perpetrator. Meaning was he was a narcissistic little turd and he was sentenced to life in prison. And it, it should have ended there. Just saying. In Jill world, it ends there. But... <laughs> by all means. Just saying. Right. However, by 1974, a few years into the sentence, you know, Jack has become a voracious reader, and he's starting to really appreciate writing. And he starts to write children's stories. Because a murderer should write kids' stories, right? Yes, all sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, sunshine and rainbows. Throw in a couple poems and, you know, plays and, you know, short stories. And he starts to, you know, gain some of the respect from the Austrian literary world. Now, the Austrian state broadcasting company begins playing them on the air. Now, he begins to manipulate the Austrian public into believing that he suffered a traumatic childhood. Well, that can actually be true, but he's going to use that to gain their love and affection. And he's trying to use his absentee mother and his abandonment to his psychological benefit here. And combining the story of his troubled youth and a man with boyish, good-looking charms while he's telling you about all of this. Well, you get a convicted murderer giving televised readings from inside a prison, building up a following of Austrian literati. Hmm. The Austrians believe that criminals could be rehabilitated with proper support. And Jack Unterweger was about to become their poster child. He was not a killer. He was an artist, reformed, reborn. And he soon released his autobiography in 1984 called The Purgatory or The Trip to Jail, Report of a Guilty Man. Oh, he wrote, quote, No theme was more poetic than the death of a beautiful woman. There is an age at which a woman must be beautiful in order to be loved. And there is an age in which a woman must be loved in order to be beautiful. End quote. Uh, It became a bestseller across Europe. It was Jack's writings within this book that convinced the Austrian public that he had been reformed while in prison. After a campaign launched to get him released, Unterweger was a free man. He stepped out of prison on May 23, 1990, after only serving 15 years of his life sentence. Yeah, yeah. over a fucking some poems. Because a woman needs to be loved when she's 
beautiful or Don't something. Don't give me that bullshit anymore. She's beautiful. She's something when she needs loving. Okay. Because nobody's ever thought of that. Okay. A resocialized individual, Unterweger found himself in all the right circles. He purchased a Ford Mustang and designer clothes. He even picked up a young blonde girlfriend, Bianca Merrick, who traipsed around with him. Considered a heartthrob, he posed for a magazine in which he showed off his muscled and tattooed chest. Ooh, prison. And using a rope he found as a prop, he fashioned it into a noose. Because that's sexy and not strange, right? It's not morbid, Mm. right? No, and considering what he went to prison for. Murder, no, right? Jack was a frequent guest on talk shows. He was invited to speak at various events. His book was even made into a movie. Fun fact. There are actually a few movies that have been made about Jack Underwear. Most notably, there was Seduction and Despair, starring John Malkovich as Underwear in 2008, and, quote, Entering Hades with Michael Fassbender picking up the role as Jack, which is yet to be made. And, of course, we will cue you in on updates as that one is pending. Yep, so just four months after his release from prison, so reformed, I know, on September 15, 1990, the body of Blanco Bakova was found along the Latva River near Prague. And, yes, I probably screwed that up. I've been there, and I still don't know. All those letters don't go together for me well. Americans can't put those consonants together. I know, I'm sorry, I tried. We just can't. And she was lying on her back naked, her legs were spread wide, and she was covered by beads. And she was strangled with a pair of gray stockings knotted around her neck. And Unterwager, he's actually been doing some research there in the red light district for the magazine he worked for. And it would seem reasonable that the urge to kill would arise, especially with him having his mommy issues. Mm-hmm. And I will say, I don't have a really singular source for my research here, but I saw various accounts that said Bokova was not a prostitute. And if she wasn't, I believe she would be the only victim of the Vienna Woods killer to not be a prostitute. So he definitely had a type. Okay, fair. Unlike Ramirez, he really didn't have a type except for somebody being home at a place that Satan brought him to. Yep. So the next year, 1991, saw a series of brutal murders begin in Graz, which is 125 miles south of Vienna, Jack's hometown. And well-known prostitutes began to go missing. First, there was Brunhild Nasser and Hyde Marie Hammerer. They disappeared about a month apart, but their bodies were found within a few days of each other in the woods just outside the town. And both were found on their backs, covered in leaves, strangled with pipes or their own bra. And a third woman, Alfred Schrent, disappeared on March 7, 1991. And her parents actually received really disturbing phone calls from a person unknown who was taunting them about their daughter's occupation, which was prostitution. And her body was found a few months later on October 5th, the scene quite like those found before her. Now, I'm sure you recall, the M.O. is actually very, very similar to that of Unterweger's first victim, in which he served 15 years for, so Margaret Schaefer. And the police finally began to think that they might have a serial killer on their hands when another four more women went missing, this time closer to Vienna. And those were Sylvia Engler, 
Sabine Mitzi, Regina Fromm, and Karen Oroglu. And these were all within a month. And when their bodies were found sometime later, same on the stockings, cross, on their backs, and even mm-hmm. So the police are beginning to think the MO, the bras, the strangling. We could suspect Unterweger here. They know his method, and this is shockingly similar. So now Jack thinks he's being very clever as he starts to insert himself into the investigation, and he's now reporting on the murderers that he himself has committed for the magazines he works for. Some organized serial killers are known to do this, and in this case, Jack wanted to know what the police knew. There are seven victims in total, most sex workers, all strangled to death. However, the police had hid some details. Obviously, this is a very smart move, because it helps weed out any false confessions, and it leaves the real killer in the dark. Now, as students of true crime, you know you never insert yourself into a murder investigation where the person you are looking for is you. doesn't end well. So the unsebs weapon of choice in this case is the victim's own bra because the elastic in the bands, it actually makes for a perfect weapon in which to strangle someone. This killer would make a small cut in the shoulder strap and be able to maneuver the bands and straps into three ligatures which loop around the neck in a way certain to compress the neck by inches completely constricting the corroded artery. All right, this is not an easy death. Now, by this time, Unterweger had reached celebrity status. He is the picture of reform. He is the backing of Austria's elites. So the police have to tread lightly investigating this guy. Austrian law enforcement quietly reach out to the expertise of FBI special agent profiler Greg McCary. It's time to get out of Dodge in 1991. And the Austrian magazine that Unterweger writes for asks him to travel to the United States and write about crime in downtown Los Angeles. Perfect timing, right? So his focus is going to be on prostitution. Ding, ding, ding. Jack whisks his young lover, Bianca Merck, off with him on his journey to America. Now, it was a coincidence when Unterweger left Vienna that the murders stopped. Look at that, but it didn't go unnoticed. Upon arriving in L.A., Jack checks himself into the Cecil Hotel. No way. I know, Tara, he did. If I were here. He checks into the... Of course he did. The Austrian ghoul had heard about Ramirez staying at the Cecil, and these two kindred spirits are intermingling together. No wonder the Cecil's portal to hell. I mean, just, there it is. Now, of course, his uh, research upon coming to America, this is just great, he requests a ride-along with the LAPD. And in this way, having his rooms so close to Skid Row, he's able to begin his work interviewing as many prostitutes as possible with all the insights gleaned from the LAPD themselves. Mm -hmm. So 
He, of course, invites sex workers to his room up on the 15th floor via the outdoor fire escapes, and he's asking them questions and, of course, uh, you know, enjoying their favors. Kind of how the research is. Not for me. I'm doing it wrong. I think so. You are. Oh, damn. But now we're in America, it's not long before he starts killing here, too. And in the Malibu Hills, a prostitute's body was found on July 11, 1991, with her bra wrapped tightly around her neck. Oh. So only five years removed from Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, the LAPD was on high alert. Two more murders took place soon after, one being just blocks from the Cecil. Shannon Axley, Irene Rodriguez, and Sherry Ann Long, all prostitutes, were brutally beaten, sexually assaulted with tree branches, and strangled with their own bra, left to be found by unsuspecting passerbys in remote areas. And by the time Interpol recognized what appeared to be a similar pattern to their Viennese killer, Unterweger had already made his way back to Austria. And when Special Agent McQuarrie notified the FBI in the U.S. that Unterweger was a likely suspect in the Austrian murders, he also disclosed the M.O. of the bra strangling. And a light bulb, huh, notice how that happened, went off as the connection was made as to who was murdering women in L.A. And the word got out that Jack Unterweger was indeed a suspect. But he began making phone calls and telling the press that they were only trying to pin it on him because they couldn't blame anyone else despite the pile of evidence that was accumulating. <gasps> a red mountain, if you will. Not a red mountain, Tara. <laughs> yes, a, a red mountain, a big pile of evidence. Oh, no. But by the time police showed up at his apartment in Austria, he was already gone. He actually went back to the U.S., down to Miami via Switzerland, France, and Canada. So, real-life murder bookies, we read a book, we haven't talked about it yet, it's called Serpentine, and it was about serial killer Charles Sobrage, who I actually never heard about until we read about him. He was a wannabe playboy who literally traveled all over Europe and Asia, and this is what it reminded me of on a smaller scale. Totally. Absolutely. Probably never really heard about him either, there, but uh, definitely good book. We have to do this book. We really, really do. Just so different. So here's Unterweger moving around intercontinentally. He starts a campaign against the police, telling anybody who would listen that they have the wrong man, that he's innocent, he's a victim of police persecution. He was freed from prison. Surely he's innocent. Ah, yes. That's the only reason they release people from prison. Yeah, but the worst part is that people people believe this, all right? They, they totally buy this. Now, hopefully, you know, the police have enough evidence to convict him. Well, thank God they did. They have a ton of evidence, and there's a paper trail, there's receipts, car rental agreements, credit card transactions, all pointing to Unterweger being near around the place where there were bodies. You, you leave a trail of bodies, that eventually it connects to you. Eyewitnesses even reported a man bearing similar resemblance to Jack Unterweger being with the victims the night they disappeared. Hair also belonging to Jack's first victim, Blanca Bakova, was also found in his BMW. All right, so on February 27, 1992, 
Jack's travels come to an abrupt halt when he's arrested. Thank God. Oh, yeah, thank goodness. All right, his young girlfriend's mother had sent up a wire transfer to send Merrick some money. And when she and Unterweger went to retrieve the cash, a few U.S. Marshals followed them out of the building. Unterweger felt something was up. He started to book it, a chase ensued, and they ended up in a parking lot. And when he was advised that he was wanted for the murders in Austria, he broke down and cried. (laughs) Do not believe that it was remorse. He cried because he got caught. Believe me, he's a narcissist. He's not crying for victims. He's crying because he got caught. That's what they do. And here's where Unterweger tries to be smart. He wants to be tried in California where he would only be facing three murder charges as opposed to seven or more in Austria. I'm sorry, it's a math problem. Yes, but guess what? He realized that he would be facing the death penalty. And he agreed to be extradited back to his homeland. However, guess what, little Jack? He isn't so lucky. And when his trial began, all of his crimes were going to be heard. L.A., Prague, and Austria. The Austrian ghoul tried to appeal to the jury to his supporters with what they called self-deprecating honesty, that he was a rat and a liar, and that he had little respect for women. Go figure. But surely, surely, just as they had before, they were going to appreciate everything that came out of his mouth as the truth. However, he did remain without remorse, which is a big, big no-no. No remorse is certainly going to get you nothing from anybody. Yeah. Now Jack's court began to wane, and the public realized that Jack Unterweger had been writing about the murders that he had actually committed. Jake Anderson, the author of Gone at Midnight, states that he may have been the only serial killer in history to use literature to extend a murder spree. And he continued to interview and question those who were investigating the murders in order to obtain that information in order to stay one step ahead. And this would lend to his future diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, which, as you all may know, is a common mental disorder among serial killers. Not everyone with MPD is a serial killer, but this is where the individual exhibits exaggerated feelings of self-importance or self-obsession, a lack of empathy, arrogant behavior, and a strong sense of entitlement or very low self-esteem, which is all of the characteristics and traits of Jack and He's living and breathing narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And so he was convicted on nine counts of murder, Blanca Bacoda in Prague, all three victims in L.A., Shannon Exley, Irene Rodriguez, and Sherry Long, and five victims in Vienna. He was sentenced to life in a maximum security prison, and just hours after his conviction on June 29, 1994, he made the same intricate ligature used on his victims out of his own shoelaces and a string from his tracksuit, and he hanged himself in his cell. He was 43 years old, and a government official would actually call his suicide his best murder. Now to sum up, this is a quote from Jack Unterweger, a poem, I believe. You still seem strange and distant, and lovely death, but one day you will be close and full of flames. Come, lover. I am there. Take me. I am yours. Hmm. Burn in hell. I'm a song with that last line. Burn in hell. 
What drew these two men, these two well-known serial killers, to the Cecil Hotel? Considering the history of the hotel, does dark energy leak onto the streets, pulling those in who are susceptible to the paranormal? Seems like it. Guests have experienced the inexplicable desire to open their windows and jump to their deaths. Alarm clocks go off in the night without being set up. At the same time, every night. Drafts of cold air, phone calls with no one on the other end, guests waking up in the middle of the night feeling as if someone is choking the life out of them. There's no doubt that the Cecil is haunted, whether by history, ghosts, the supernatural, just some negative residual energy imprint onto the sheer fabric of the hotel by guests and tenants of the past, the doors of the Cecil will once again reopen after a massive renovation project. If you ever decide to stay, make sure you don't become one of the hotel's more permanent residents. Well, there it is, folks. Hopefully you're moving through A Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris on the Jeffrey McDonald case. All right, this is a long story. And if you don't know anything about this triple homicide, you're going to find that you know everything now. All right. Yeah. Jeffrey McDonald is a medical doctor, a captain in the U.S. Army out of Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And he is arrested and eventually convicted for the murders of his pregnant wife, Colette, and their two little girls, Kimberly and Kristen, five and two, back in February 1970. Still reminds me of Chris Watts. I'm sorry it does. Errol Morris makes it very clear that the McDonald's conviction isn't quite the slam duck I had thought it was. All right, he raises a lot of issues about the investigation that were not handled correctly and refutes some of the assumptions that are just not plain true. In one interview, A Wilderness of Error is described as the culmination of an investigation spanning over 20 years and a masterly reinvention of the true crime thriller. So thank you, as always, for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or send us an email over to jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We'd certainly love to hear from you. And follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pandora, Podbean, iHeartRadio. I think we're pretty much everywhere now. And if you can, leave us a five-star review. We love seeing your feedback. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Be good, guys. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved.